Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Square, Episode 3, a novel by Ed Adams. Mohammed. Mohammed Mabarain was contacted by his team boss, Doug. He knew he was being asked to meet Robert Alton off-site, although close to the main SI6 headquarters building. This was unusual, even for Robert. Mohammed had first become part of SI6 via Robert Alton, who he had met first several years ago when they shared a train ride across Turkey. Alton had helped Mohammed and got Mohammed's papers straightened and provided initial work, largely because of Mohammed's good English mixed with knowledge of local Arabic dialects in an area of strategic military interest. Mohammed knew his entry into SI6 was improbable and that that was quite an asset in some of the situations over the last few years. Mohammed's family were all from Iraq but killed as part of Saddam Hussein's purges during the 1980s. It had started when a green army truck arrived in young Mohammed's village with five or six men in the back of it. The men walked around and used their radio to call the base. Mohammed's father had taken Mohammed to one side. Go now from the village, his father had said. Don't come back. Go on your bicycle and leave the village along the low road, the road which runs downhill. Take this bag and take this money. It is your ticket to another life. Son, however difficult this is, you must never come back here. Do you understand? Mohammed was a tough youth, very fit from running and climbing in the area around the village. He had strong desert craft and knew how to stay out of trouble in the scorching sun and how to find water in the cooler evenings. He knew how to drive a car, but would not admit this to his father because it would cause a serious amount of disciplining. Something bad will happen, he asked his father, knowing the stories from other parts of the region. Yes, son, something terrible will happen. I don't want you to be here when the rest of the troops arrive. Mohammed nodded. He would do as his father requested, although he hated the thought. He would be alone without his family and friends. He picked up his bicycle and made his way to the edge of the village so that the noisy troops would not notice. Then he slithered down a bank onto a low and overgrown road leading from the village, down a long sloping hill which ran for several kilometres. On his bicycle, the gradient gave him distance without much effort, and within an hour he was many kilometres from the village, now the other side of some mountain ridges. He stopped to look back. The air was silent, the heat was intense. He could see some wisps of black cloud from behind the ridges, the black cows were coming from about where his village was located. He blinked back a tear and turned and cycled on. Mohammed spent three weeks alone in the open. He had to break some of his religious laws along the way, neglecting prayer and stealing food to eat as he headed eventually to the north of the country and across the border into Syria, where he could pick up a freight railway line which headed into Turkey. He had stayed on a long and very slow freight train through Nusaybin and Sinyat, and then a long, slow journey across Cappadocia to Gnali, which was the nearest thing he had seen to civilization in weeks. Gnali was also a modest vacation destination, with a famous lake and some resort hotels. Mohammed had money and identity documents from the package that his father had given him, but he knew he would need to use them with great care. In Nali, he found a hotel laundry, and instead of buying clothes, he borrowed a few from the laundry bags, converting himself into a western-looking youth. Mohammed had been awestruck with the gargantuan landscapes of the area, the enormity of the skies, and the sheer awe-inspiring natural beauty of the areas sculpted by volcanoes. 
Like those before him, Muhammad saw this as an area through which he was fleeing from something terrible. Before him, early Christians fleeing persecution from Rome settled here and created fresco-rich churches and monasteries throughout the valleys. He was on the Silk Road, and it could lead him to the fresh life his father had described. Muhammad was also streetwise enough to know that drug smugglers nowadays use this same route. Seljuk Turks had built respites for camel caravans travelling the route. These in the caves were chiselled into the Tufa rock, creating underground settlements once used to escape the attention of invaders. Muhammad knew that he should use some of his money to take a train for the rest of his journey across Turkey to Istanbul, which he perceived as one of the big cities of the West. His father had always encouraged him to speak English and he was able to buy the ticket from a hotel ticketing source. The concierge was used to handling strange requests and didn't seem at all phased that a 16-year-old Iraqi was travelling the length of Turkey unaccompanied. There was only a train every two days, but fortune on his part meant that Muhammad could catch a train later that same day. It was a two-part journey and Muhammad was travelling in unreserved seating in the lowest class on the train. He didn't care. His main objective now was to get to somewhere large and anonymous. Istanbul was his stepping stone for this. In the area around Nali, although two countries away from his native Iraq, he could still understand the language surprisingly well. A part of the old Ottoman Empire and the dialects had survived. Mohammed moved to the station and looked for where the train would appear. To his surprise, it was already in place at the platform some two hours before departure. It was being stocked with water, drinks and snacks for the journey. He decided to see if he could get on board and found that they locked the doors except by the area where the items were being placed on board. He snuck on and found a seat. There were no warnings it was reserved and he sat comfortably using the small bag as a pillow for his head. An hour later he was disturbed and awoken by another three people moving into this area of the train. They were foreigners talking in English though he did not know where they were from. They were talking fast but he could understand most of what they were saying. He noticed their short haircuts and wondered if they were military. One of them looked at him now as he appeared to awake. "Assalamu alaikum," said one of the British to Muhammad. "We alaikum assalam," replied Muhammad automatically. Muhammad looked at the three travellers and that their language was limited to hello and welcome, so he switched into English. "I go to Istanbul. This part of the train is correct, yes?" The three, the three travellers smiled. Yes, this is the right part of the train. We're also going to Istanbul, then flying back to England. They smiled. Mohammed smiled back. These looked as if they would be travel-free companions. Mohammed noticed that they had high-technology phones and music equipment, expensive-looking backpacks and stylish clothing. He decided that they were wealthy and that the money and goods which he had would not be of much interest to people as wealthy as these three. One of them offered him a can of drink, Coca-Cola. He took it with some ceremony and watched as the three of them all took cans, clicked them open and began drinking. He had been sparing with water for the last three weeks and this was some contrast. Another half an hour and the train lurched out of the station. There had been a lot of commotion with items being loaded and last minute retail opportunities for bottled water, Turkish coffee and small paper cups served through the window of the train and even some large cases being fed in through the windows instead of via the doors. Mohammed sat with the British people and wondered if he would get to Istanbul with nothing being stolen. "'What's your name?' asked one of the Brits. "'My name is Robert, and here are Adam and Richard,' he continued. "'We have been seeing the beautiful countryside around Nali. 
I've been in the desert for the last three weeks, replied Mohammed. It's been a long journey for me. Mohammed described the village he'd left and the long trip across the difficult terrain to get to Syria and then across into Turkey. The area he had crossed was the western tip of Syria and also where the freight train line ran, and so he'd taken an optimal route. Robert looked at the other two Brits. We know about that village. It has been in the news here. He asked softly, did you know other people in the village? My family were there and many of my relatives and friends. I think I know someone murdered them, said Mohammed. I could see smoke and hear noises like gunshots when I left. I was already a long way from the village, but you are confirming something that I already knew. Robert looked Mohammed in the eyes. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this. I'd known and I've already had three weeks to grieve. Now I know I'm alone and must make my own way. My father told me to find a fresh life. Mohammed had just heard the news he had expected ever since he left the village. The first truck of soldiers was a vanguard for a larger group, and they were there to destroy what they saw as an oppositional force, based upon a different interpretation of religion. Mohammed's father had given Mohammed everything that the family possessed in order to help him make his escape. Almost certainly, his whole family were now slaughtered in the village, and Mohammed was alone in the world. You are Kurdish? asked Robert. Mohammed nodded. Yes, it's where I live. As an Arab, Mohammed didn't see land borders in the same way as politicians. The land was for everyone. People should be able to live anywhere they wanted. He had just proved that by moving from Iraq through Syria and into Turkey. OK, said Robert. I think it's better now that you keep your origins quiet unless an official asks you. You have some papers? Mohammed nodded. He knew his rucksack contained papers prepared many months earlier by his father. They were papers that should allow him to travel to many countries as long as he had money. So can you help me at all? asked Mohammed, who at this stage didn't think he had anything to lose. The three travellers looked at one another. A local person well versed in desert craft and with an understanding of the terrain and local dialects. This was a strong find for the travellers as Mohammed spoke good English and did not have any other ties. We may be able to help, said Robert, as the train rattled onward through the orange landscape of Cappadocia. It would be another 750 kilometres before they reached Istanbul. During his time in the desert, Mohammed had decided that Istanbul would be the start of his new life. Istanbul, a real edge city between east and west, spanning many different cultures, part European and part in Asia, where it crosses the Bosphorus, the only metropolis in the world on two continents. Istanbul, capital to three empires, the Romans, Byzantine and the Ottomans, then, after the establishment of the Republic of Turkey, the capital moved to Ankara, although most Turks would still see Istanbul as the capital for all but government bureaucratic reasons. It would be easy to get lost in Istanbul, easy to find something to do, a way to make some money. Mohammed didn't mind starting low. He thought he had enough cash to get started, although the money from his father seemed to be American money. He would need to be careful so that people did not think he had stolen it. And now, on the train, Mohammed had been given a new proposition by the three people. Employment in return for a place to stay and some proper paperwork. The work involved him travelling with them back into the desert areas, providing translation, cultural references and access to locals. For, for Mohammed, the thought of a safe place, some cash and proper papers made a very compelling option for Mohammed. In this terrible situation, he had found a good route. A bird in the hand is worth ten in the tree he thought, remembering the Arab proverb. So right there on the train, Mohammed had agreed to work with these three British military people and would accompany them to the British Embassy in Istanbul.
Mohammed knew that he was getting involved with something that may make him take sides. But there had been much terror in his own country that siding with people opposed to what had happened made sense. At the embassy, the three travellers showed passes. Robert spent several minutes explaining the purpose of bringing Mohammed along. Mohammed could see that Robert wielded considerable influence. Mohammed was admitted to the embassy but taken to a separate area where he was told he would they would question him before they would allow him to regain contact with the others. The room was pleasant enough, upstairs in a separate block from the main buildings. There were guard dogs on the ground floor and armed militia inside and in most of the corridors. Mohammed was offered fruit and drink and then after about 20 minutes someone came in to ask him questions. He noticed that Robert from the journey was also present, although now in fresh clothing and looked somewhat smarter than he had done on the train. It will be fine, said Robert. Just tell them what you told us. Mohammed thought for a minute in case this was some kind of trick, but decided that it was safer to follow the instructions. He again explained his story and the route he had taken. His description was easy and unlaboured because everything in it was very real and true. His questioners could see that too. It did not take long for Mohammed to be provided with temporary accommodation in Istanbul and a small allowance provided by Her Majesty's government. Mohammed had then been introduced to the work of Robert Douglas and others. From the embassy, they were all trained for other more specialised duties and needed ways into and out of Syria, Iraq and Iran. Mohammed became a guide and a translator for them and helped with missions which had a semi-military nature. Mohammed was happy to cooperate and considered the work of the UK government to be a way that he could get back at the people who had destroyed his village. Over the next few years, his bitterness dulled, and in the same period, the loyalty to his UK friends increased. Robert Alton, the first person he had met on the train, rose through the ranks within the government group and was soon a senior player, with Mohammed as a loyal supporter. (laughs) 